Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, and we, we've already sang it. Here's my heart, Lord. But God, in that statement can be fear, can be shame, can be guilt, can be distance. Lord, I was thinking as we were singing that song that your, your voice calls out to us across a distance so vast we can't even imagine. But the greatest distance is into our hearts. Lord, we put up walls before you. We, we try to keep you out and we try to give you parts we think you want, but keep other parts back. God, you want all of us. You want the good, you want the bad, you want all of it. And that's how you transform us. That's how you speak life into our lives, Lord. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, right now you would come. You would speak to our hearts and to our minds. And as we look at the teachings in Matthew 13 this morning, I pray, God, that we would see, God, that you ask more from us. But, Lord, you give us more as well. Lord, I pray you'd forgive us for not taking our faith seriously enough. Thank you for this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, welcome to UCC. If you are visiting with us for the first time, we want to say welcome to you. And for those of you who are not visiting, you're welcome as well too. Someone said to me, you only seem to welcome new people. And it's like, no, I like everybody. I'm an extrovert that way. Um, We are continuing on a series we started off a few weeks ago uh, called Biology of the Body. And the idea behind it, and I said to you before when we first started this series, is that I had felt that God had placed this, this teaching in me um, that seems kind of a weird thing to say, I know, but the, the idea behind it was simply this, um, was that I felt that we needed to kind of go back to what the church was, and we needed to say to ourselves, what is it God intended? How is it exactly that he expected us to kind of operate? And so that's what this series has uh, been about. Sam, we're recording, right? We're good? We're good? We're good. Okay, great. Um, so let's recap what we talked about last week and, and uh, kind of make sure we're all on the same page. Last week, we looked at this quote from uh, A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer said this, Religious entertainment is in many places rapidly crowding out the serious things of God. Many churches these days have become little more than poor theaters where fifth-rate producers peddle their shoddy wares with full approval of evangelical leaders who can even quote a holy text in defense of the delinquency. And hardly a man dares raise his voice against it. This was uh, said by A.W. Tozer back in 1955. In 1955, and again, uh, late 1950s, and again, you can take a look back at the shift of post-World War II and, and what took place there. But there was a shift within church. And the shift within church was this idea of how do we attract people to church? This is the question they were asking back in 1955. And I think A.W. Tozer's head would explode to think about what churches are doing today to get people in the door. And I said to you last week that what are we sacrificing in that idea? When we, when we want people to come to God, and we do, and we want to make sure we remove as many barriers as possible between the gospel and people, and that is true, and that's a great conversation. But in that conversation, what do we also sacrifice that perhaps maybe we shouldn't? Um, we looked at this uh, passage from 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and we kind of stayed there for the entire time. It said this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Remember we said, 1 John the letter written by the Apostle John was an interesting letter. It was one of the last letters written to the church. We think that this letter was written around 90 AD. Now, why that's important is because the generation that had witnessed Jesus' teaching, his miracles, his resurrection, they're all gone. The Apostle John was one of the last uh, disciples left alive. 
And he's seeing this new generation of Christ followers coming into the church. And he's saying to them, listen, youngins, right? Because this is Grandpa John here. He says, listen, let me, let me help you to understand, right? We looked at the first chapter of First John when John says, listen, I've seen with my eyes. I've touched with my hands. I've seen my Savior. I've seen what is true. So John's letter speaks to us as someone who is trying to help the early church remember who Jesus was. And it's a very relevant letter for us today because we are many generations displaced from when Christ walked the earth. And the letters back, that letter that John wrote in 90 AD is still relevant to us today. Right? Do not love the world or anything of the world. And uh, we looked at uh, how John kind of wrapped up his letter in 1 John 5. He said this, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And that's very important, right? We can't redeem what is corrupted, right? The, the enemy, the devil, Satan, whichever word you want to use, he is given free reign in this world. This is his playground, Right? And so the reason you have to understand that is sometimes when we're trying to redeem it, we have to make sure we understand what our role is in this world. And that's why, uh, and as we're going to look at this morning, Jesus talked about this thing called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven was meant to be these bastions of, of, of light in dark places. Right? And so that's how John uh, wraps up his letter. He also says, we also know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. That's so important. The word understanding that he uses there is this idea of discernment, right? Just ask the question, right? If worship, and we played that game with that worship, the, the two pictures, right? Which one was a rock concert? Which one was a worship concert? It's, it was a little uncomfortable there, but the fact is we have to say to ourselves, what are we doing, right? I was seeing these pictures of this junior high convention, uh, and in the junior high convention, the stage was all done up. There's lasers and there's lights and all that, and there's junior highs around it. That's fantastic. But all we're teaching these junior highs is to be entertained, right? And, and these junior highs have to, have to understand what church is and what being in the body of Christ is. And as they progress through that, when they come to church on Sunday morning, they're not going to experience that. There's a disconnect, right? Trust me, I'm, I've been a youth pastor for way longer than I care to admit, but I've seen it, right? When we, when, we, when, we, when we use sugar as this idea of trying to get people into church, it doesn't sustain them and it doesn't mature them um, for sure. So that's kind of what we were talking about last week. Uh, the video clip there was from a, a guy named Jerry Packer. For those of you who read, Jerry Packer is one of the most... Um, um, prolific Canadian Christian writers. Uh, he's written like over 80 books. He's incredible as far as his thinking. And uh, J.I. Packer um, is, uh, uh, comes from the Anglican tradition as well too. Uh, so I, I, he has a very interesting voice to speak into evangelicalism in Canada. Uh, here's a quote from, uh, I love what he has to say here about what it means to be a Christ follower. Christ had no interest in gathering vast crowds of professed adherents who would melt away as soon as they found out what following him actually demanded of them. In our own presentation of Christ's gospel, therefore, we need to lay a similar stress on the cost of following Christ and make sinners face it soberly before we urge them to respond to the message of free forgiveness. In common honesty, we must not conceal the fact that free forgiveness, in one sense, will cost everything. So what Jared Packer is trying to say is, as we are trying to make sure people understand what the gospel is, we have to make sure we, right alongside of that, that the gospel will, properly understood, it will cost you everything. And that's as it should be. And so what, we, what has happened is there's this negotiation that can take place within church today. 
Well, okay, you know, just just come, just show up. We're so happy you're here, and here, just keep that. You can just, you know, and just, you, you can have that part of your life, or you can have that aspect of your life. That's fine, but we won't ask questions about that, but just just come, please, just come. We're like that, you know, that kid throws a birthday party and wants their friends to show up, and I've got a clown and balloons, and i got a piñata, and the clown's going to ride the piñata, we can beat the clown on the piñata. Like, you get the idea, right? Although that would be a very cool party and probably illegal as it was, right? So the idea is this, is we're trying desperately, right, to, to take Jesus and make him cool, make him hip, right? And, and, and also we're trying as Christ followers to, to be, seem that we're not so weird to the culture. We're nice people. We're okay. Please go to church. See, the, see that guy on the rock guitar? Yeah, see, her, see, see all that? And, and in doing so, we may be perhaps um, diminishing the cost of what it means to follow Christ, this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 13. Uh, we're going to spend some time there. Um, so in this series, I've been using the body, a biological body, to say if the body of Christ was a biological body, what diseases, what problems would the body uh, be uh, experiencing? Well, this morning I'm going to introduce you to another uh, problem that the body might be uh, dealing with, and uh, that's called uh, the malabsorption syndrome. Now, it seems weird, but you know this, and only one person who understands the doctor in the audience actually knows what I'm about to say here. Um, malabsorption syndrome actually is something kind of common, and you know about it, but you don't know it by this name. But let me explain to you what it is first. Malabsorption is difficulty in the digestive or absorption of nutrients from food. Malabsorption can affect growth and development, or it can lead to specific illness. Now, without asking you to raise your hands, how many of you have a gluten intolerance? Don't raise your hands, and I'm not going to actually question the validity of that statement. I'm just saying, do you have that? Or, as for example, myself, lactose. I, have, I, I am lactose intolerant. True story. My family, <laughs> you're going to love this, uh, and my sister is here this morning, so you can, you, you can ask her if this is true or not. We used to buy unpasteurized milk. And so what would happen is, on Sunday morning, this dairy farm would bring us this vat of milk, it was unpasteurized, and my mom would would boil that milk all afternoon long, like in our house, and it just it it was it wasn't great, but that's what we did, right? Because my mom used to go to the grocery store as a new immigrant from India would say that milk you get in the bags here, that's not milk, that's like that's like milk alternative. So she wants real stuff, right? And so uh, she wanted milk that you get from the farm. Now in India. No one had lactose intolerance, right? That, that didn't even exist, right? So my mom, because I was kind of a scrawny kid, which I'm sure you have no problem believing with that, she would make me drink a, a, a big glass of milk, okay? Now, because this is the milk you get from the farm, it's, and it's just boiled and all that, there's something called what we call malai. Malai is basically, um, uh, it, it's the skin of the milk. It was disgusting. Uh, you would chew the milk and you drink it. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? So here I am, this scrawny little kid, and my mom, just so you know, my mom is a force of nature. She, when she was alive, you did not say no to her. She said jump, you said how high and, and how many times. Or what, like, like, so she put this big glass of milk in front of me, and I had to drink it before I go to school. Well, I didn't understand what lactose intolerance was. I didn't know what that meant. So here I am, dutifully drinking my milk and, you know, the chunks and all. Um, and again, that's a whole other story there. And I would go to school and be like, oh, like, what is going on here, right? And I'd come home and I'd, I'd be like bloated and gassy and that's more information you need than, uh, than this morning. And I'd come home and I'd be like, ah, right? And I'd say to my mom, mom, the milk, is, it, it, it's hurting. She's like, you just don't want to drink it. Have two tomorrow. And I was like, okay, fine. You get the idea, right? 
Well, that's malabsorption, right? When your body is unable to absorb nutrients, that's what it is, right? And so if the body of Christ was a biological body, uh, body, I would say to you this morning that we are actually experiencing malabsorption syndrome. We are not able to fully take in all the nutrients that we need to become mature followers of Christ. And as you have your Bibles open in Matthew 13, I want to take a look at Matthew 13, not the entire chapter, but a good chunk of it. Now, sometimes what you need to understand, the Bible is laid out in certain ways to teach us things. Now, as I've said in our Easter series, because we are Gentiles, we don't understand what's happening here, right? Matthew 13 is seven parables. Okay? Whenever you see a cluster of that many parables, you have to ask yourself, what is the writer trying to say to us? Okay? It's important to understand that when, when the writers in the Gospels were, were recording Jesus' life, they were doing it more in a narrative format. What I mean by that is a story. Jesus went here. He did this. Then he goes on, right? But when you have a concentration of the teaching of Jesus or the parables of Jesus, you stop and say, why is Matthew putting all these parables together? Because if you look in other Gospels, these parables are broken up and separated. But Matthew, for some reason, when he's writing his Gospel, he takes these parables and he puts them together. Now, the first parable is the parable of the sower. I'm not actually going to touch on that. I've taught on that sermon, that parable, way too often. But let me just say this about the parable of the sower. Four soils, right? Jesus tells us about the four soils, right? You've got the path. You've got the rocks, you've got the thorns, and you've got the good soil, right? And, and, and Jesus says, listen, the soils are our hearts, right? And these are four terrains. These are four um, uh, ways that our hearts receive the gospel. And he goes through that, right? Now, the reason that's important is because Matthew puts that at the very top because that's going to guide us through these next six parables, Okay. Now, when Matthew puts these parables together, there is a method to how he does it. How he presents these parables is important. Now, to the, to the Jewish people, they would understand this form of teaching, right? It's kind of like, it, 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 it's a way of kind of arranging it, but then you bookend it in a certain way. And I'm going to show you what I mean by that in a second. So, Matthew 13 has six parables, and we're going to look at them. Now, another thing you need to understand, there is a bit of a problem with parables, now, what I mean by that is that the parables are, um, they're, they're difficult, right? There are six parables, but they're grouped into uh, sets of two, right? And the problem is the parables are actually kind of complex. Now, what I mean by complex, they're nice stories, but hidden in those nice stories are truths. So, Jesus taught this way. Now, when I was in seminary, when I was in Bible college, we had a professor there. I did not like him, and he did not like me, and that was okay. We're, we're, we're clear on that, right? But he, he had a saying. He said this, Jesus was a storyteller, and I want to be like Jesus. My wife is chuckling because she sat in that class as well, too. Now, what was interesting, what he was trying to say is that as you preach, as you teach, use stories. This guy was an incredible communicator, okay? He was as funny as the day is long. Like, if he had thought about going and being a professional comedian, he could have done it easily. He was so funny. He was a retreat speaker, a quite uh, a sought-after retreat speaker. So he would go out and speak retreats. He was very funny. His stories were hilarious. Now, if you go into as many retreats as I did, he kind of repeated the stories, but you get the idea, right? He was funny. So what he taught us as, as young preachers, he said, listen, spend time on your story. Spend time. Because Jesus was a storyteller. you got to be like Jesus. So what would happen is 
And, and, and Bible college, you have to actually preach in front of Bible college students, which is, by the way, the worst thing to ever do, right? Because they're not listening. They're making fun of you, and, 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 they're, and they're critiquing you, right? But what we had to do is we had to spend half our time on our sermons finding stories because Jesus was a storyteller. Right, but what's interesting, I never had this moment till afterwards. And it's like you know when someone says something to you, and you have a great, you know, you have a great way of saying back to them, but you think about it like days later. You're like, oh, if I could just build a time machine, and I have this great right. He said to us that Jesus was a great storyteller. He was, but what the funny thing was that no disciple ever imitated him. Nobody ever else used parables. Why? Because parables are dangerous. Because there's no key to understanding it, to unlocking what the parables are. So when you have a parable there, you tell the story. So, you know, let me give you a modern day parable. So there's a guy, his, his, his name is Brian, and he's a worship leader. And um, that's not really how parables start off with. But you start off with a story, right? And, and Brian goes out and he sees a guy and he, and he gives him some food and, and, and the man is fed and Brian goes home, right? That's a parable, right? Now you're saying, like, that's not a great parable, but it's a story. What do you take from that? What am, I, what am I supposed to take from that, right? It's this, it's this interesting conversation, right? Well, Jesus used parables for a reason. He wanted to make it difficult, which is ridiculous, right? No pastor shouldn't preach a sermon where you're like, at, at the end of it, what was he talking about? Now, I realize every Sunday you can have that with me. I understand that, right? But hopefully I'm trying to take you to a certain way to make you understand what it is. Jesus didn't do that. But look what the Bible says in Matthew 13. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. But look how Mark's gospel. Remember, Mark's gospel is Peter's gospel, right? Peter is dictating to his disciple Mark. And this is Peter's perspective of Jesus. He says this. They may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. So parables were to hide truth. And only those who really wanted to know more would come to Jesus going, okay, great story about a farm in a field, but what are you really trying to say? And Jesus would go, well, that's a great question. And he would say to them what was going on here, right? So Matthew 13 is very much like that. So I'm going to take a look at the six parables quickly because uh, I don't have a lot of time, but the four in the... Ooh, I almost gave that away. There's four I'm going to take a look at quickly, and the other two I'm going to take a look at a bit longer. So in Matthew 13, the first parable that I'm going to take a look at is the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. Now, you know this parable, right? He says this in Matthew 13. He told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that birds come and perch in the branches. You know this parable, right? The second one, he told him still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast and that a woman took and mixed in about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough, right? So Jesus is using a couple of images here that people know, right? He's using mustard seed, which is that, and he's using yeast, right? He's using two parables that are talking about growth, right? Jesus is showing that the kingdom of heaven starts small, but outgrows our vision of what we thought it was, right? Yeast and mustard seed both start small, but expand beyond what the person expected, right? So that's the first grouping of parables. The second parable, uh, second and the third parable, you know as well too. They're about value. Now look what the, these parables are. You, and again, you know these parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Again, both of these parables you know, you've heard before, right? But Matthew, for some reason, is taking these parables and he's grouping them together. And he's trying to teach us something, right? So the idea with the value is this. The kingdom costs everything, right? Both people find something of great value and they have to sacrifice everything to purchase it. But both of them believe the sacrifice is worth the cost, right? The field and the pearl. Both of them have the same response, right? What's interesting is the first person, it's hidden, right? They just, they're just thumbing along and they find this treasure in a field. It's like, oh, I better buy this field so I can own this treasure as well legally, right? So what does he do? He sells everything he has to buy the field. Why? Because he believes that what is in the field is worth more than what he owns per- currently, right? Second person, this, this, is, this is a pearl merchant, a person who goes out and inspects pearls. I don't know much about pearls, Okay, uh, but what I found is that there is such a, um, a range of classification of pearls. Uh, the shape, the color, what type of pearls, all these type of things. So this guy is going out, but he finds one pearl, and it's perfect. And he believes that if he could purchase this pearl, he would be able to turn around and sell it for a greater value. So what does he do? He sells everything he has, right? Now, what is Jesus trying to teach here? Look how he opens it up. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he uses this parable. So, so far, both of these uh, sets of parables, about growth and about value, are all about the kingdom of heaven, okay? Now, I'm going to show you something here uh, about how Matthew is arranging everything, okay? So, with this, you see two sets of, of groupings here, right? And, and Jesus himself is showing them, right? Because he groups it himself and how he talks. But Matthew makes sure that he groups them a certain way. So he's trying to teach us something. So the first set is the mustard seed and yeast, and that's about growth, right? Both of them have this idea that this thing, that whatever it is they're talking about, it grows and expands beyond, right? Now, the second group is about value, right? It's about something that is greater than everything that you own, right? The kingdom of heaven first grows. The kingdom of heaven, secondly, is worth more than everything that you possess, But that's not all the parables. And this is where it gets interesting because Matthew bookends these four parables with two other parables, okay? And these two parables are the parables of the weeds and the parable of the net. And these parables talk about separation, okay? So, and again, for for the Jewish reader, they would see this, they would see the grouping of it and they would ask the question, why? But because we don't know how they teach and how they, how they lay things out, we take this and we're like, oh, this is a list of great parables. It's actually a bit more than that. Now, this is where it gets interesting because Matthew could have grouped those two parables about the weeds and the net any which way he wanted. Now, let me show you what these parables talk about. And these are the ones we're going to go a bit a little deeper because there's something happening here that we need to make sure we are aware of. So these parables are about separation. Okay, these parables talk about that, right? Now, let's take a look at the parables. Matthew 13, 24 to 26. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, right? It sounds familiar, but it, Quentin Tarantino twist here. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared as well. Now, look, it goes on to say this in verse 27, 28. 
the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did all these weeds come from? What's the response? An enemy did this. He replied, then the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? Right? So there's weeds amongst the wheat. And so the servants are like, well, let's get rid of these weeds. Now look, look at the response here. No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. So there's this idea of separation. Now let me show you what's happening here. Let me introduce you to, my Latin's not great, so let me see if I get this right. Lolium tumulentum. Darnel ryegrass. There you go. That's, that's the Latin word. This is what it is. Now, what's interesting is, is that I began to study, like, what kind of weeds mimic wheat? But not only what weed mimics wheat, but what weed mimics wheat in this particular geographic area? So this is actually a form of biological warfare. And what I mean by that is what would take place is if you didn't like somebody and you saw them uh, uh, sowing their seeds, what you would do is you would take the Darnell ryegrass and you would spread it out as well too. Because look what happens here. The Lolium tamelentum, the Darnell ryegrass, is a weedy annual grass. The plant stem can grow up to a meter tall. The flower is a large panicle ears. The ears are light and upright and mature, and mature ones are black in color. So on the left there, that's what Darnell ryegrass looks like. And for those of you who've ever seen weed, it looks exactly like that in the beginning form. But when it matures... It blackens. And then that, that, that's the first part. Look at the second part. The seed of Darnell are poisonous and are commonly infested by poisonous fungus. So what, what, what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven, there's good wheat there, but the enemy comes along and puts Darnell ryegrass in the ground as well too. And it grows. In the beginning, you can't tell the difference. You don't, you don't know uh, what the difference is. <clears throat> but when you, when, you go, when you go a little deeper, when it actually starts maturing, you're like, uh-oh, one is not like the other. So that's the first one that bookends this. The second one is another one. This is at the, at the end of it. This is what the uh, parable that uh, Matthew puts in. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake. It caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. They sat down and collected the good fish in the baskets, but threw away the bad one. Now, what's interesting about this is I thought to myself, what makes a fish bad? Right? Like, like, you know, like bad fish. Like, like what makes a fish bad? And I went to Leviticus and I thought there might be some Levitical law here that said eat this kind of fish but don't eat this kind of fish. There wasn't. There is Levitical law about uh, ty- types of, uh, uh, of animals that dwell in the sea. Yes, but not fish. So I thought, what makes a fish bad? What makes a fish good? And how do these fishermen know? Because every fish you throw away that's bad, that's less money in your pocket. Because you're trying to sell these fish. So I had to kind of dig a little bit deeper. And here's what I found out. So in this parable, there's a couple things that are happening here. The net that they're using is, the, is not the hand net of Matthew 4.18, but the sagane or the great drag net, which drew in a large haul of fishes. So this is a large one that would be pulled behind two boats. So in that kind of a net, you get whatever is not smart enough or fast enough to get out of its way. right? And at the end of it, they would, they would, they would, they would enclose it and they would pull it up. So the bad fish, what I found out, was actually dead fish. The word that was used here in the Greek is actually uh, sapros, which means rotten or uh, putrefied. The putrefied ones, which are already dead or putrefying, are enclosed in the net. 
if you've ever gone fishing, you've seen dead fish floating in the water, right? And so what happens is when you drag this big uh, net in, there are fish that are alive that are the good fish, but the bad fish one, uh, but the bad fish are the ones that are dead and are decomposing, the ones you could never sell at the market. So the fishermen will sit down, go through this net and saying, good, good, bad, good, 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 bad, right? So now let's take a look at this diagram once again. I want to show you what Matthew's trying to teach here, right? Because everything that Jesus is teaching about is about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like, right? You get the idea here. But when you see the grouping, something takes place here. These are not just nice parables about the kingdom of heaven, but Matthew has grouped them in such a way that you understand what's actually taking place here, right? Like you could have uh, three sets of two parables, two, 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 and you could do one with with the growth and the value and the separation at the end. But instead, Matthew decides to put those two at either end. Now, I think Matthew is trying to teach us something here, which is kind of important. There's three truths here. When you see the word kingdom of heaven, replace it with church, replace it with you. Because the kingdom of heaven, remember what Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven? Right? Remember at the time where he's being, he's being questioned in front of the Sanhedrin? They're like, where's his kingdom? Where are your soldiers? And Jesus says, if this kingdom, if my kingdom is of this world, people could rise up in violence. But he says, it's not. It's of the heart. Right? The kingdom of heaven is of the heart. That's why Matthew groups these parables because what Matthew's trying to say is we got to expose your heart a little bit here, right? We got to stop making things so easy. So the first part is about growth, right? When you look at the mustard seed and the yeast, the mustard seed starts, you plant, it's a starting point, right? But the yeast is, it, it infiltrates the entire, 60 pounds of dough is a lot of dough, okay? I, I, I don't know what that looks like, but that's a lot of dough. Right? So this yeast gets away through the entire dough in order to make it, right? And what does the Bible say about it? Yet when it grows, it is the largest and it's worked all the way through, right? So the kingdom of heaven is about growth. Whatever you believe about your faith, whatever you believe about what God's doing in you, it is meant to grow. And the two, two images here, the mustard seed starts. At some point in time, and I'm, I'm, I'm making this assumption about people here. If you have not yet decided to follow Jesus yet, you get to listen in, but this is not really applying to you. But for the rest of you, at some point in time, you decide that, you know what, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to, whatever that term Christian means to you, you make that decision. In that moment, the Bible presupposes growth. You, whether you've been a Christian for uh, six months, one year, 10 years, 30 years, There is meant to be growth. But the second thing about the yeast is that it's meant to infiltrate your entire life. You can't knead yeast into dough and it only gets into one part. The the, the idea behind it is to get into every part of your life, right? So the first thing about the kingdom of heaven, the first thing about church, the first thing about God, the first thing about your faith is there must be growth and it must infect and affect every aspect of your life. The second thing we see about the growth as, as, as value is that it is found and there is a cost, right? Look what the Bible says. In his joy, he sold everything he had. The common theme of the, theme of the kingdom of heaven is you can find it, you will encounter it, right? None of you 
were, 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 when you came out and were born as a baby, decided, yes, I love Jesus. And I'm going to follow the rest of my days of my life, right? At some point, you said, you know what? This is it. Now, it may have been as a child. It may have been as a teenager. It may have been as a young adult or an adult and so on. But there is the point where it says, you find it, but you realize something. It costs everything. And finally, when it comes to separation, it's poisonous and it's dead. Right? The, 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 the weeds and the net, the, the bad fish, the two things about both of them is that one is poisonous and will affect the entire crop and the other one was dead on arrival. Right? Look what it says. They grow together until the harvest and they threw the bad one away. Now I think there's something here that we need to kind of think about here. The first thing is this. The mustard seed and the yeast is that of the, the, about expansion beyond boundaries. Faith starts small but must work all the way through. You know what I believe? Is I believe that we have so taken salvation that's starting and we have elevated to the point of saying, if you just say this prayer, if you just believe this, then everything will be okay. But the problem is we've forgotten to say to people, and this process takes the rest of your life. It takes the rest of your life, right? But the cool thing about that, if you understand it properly, is you don't have to get everything right right away. Many of you struggle with sin. I struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. And we don't have to have it all figured out right away. Right? We, it, the kingdom of heaven in our hearts, what the church is, what, what the body of Christ is, what it's meant to be is, it starts off, but it grows. It's meant to, be, it's meant to grow. And if there isn't growth, well, we'll get to that in a second. Now, look at, look at the value of the field. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven is like, what value can you place on eternity? And that's kind of a funny thing to say, isn't it? Because sometimes we talk about Christianity in the sense of what it does for you right now. What if Christianity doesn't do anything for you right now and just makes your life miserable? Which for some of you feel that way. My friends are going out. I can't go out. They want to do it. I can't. I, all right. I grew up thinking Christianity was what you couldn't do. That's all, like, because that's all it was taught to me. You can't do this, you can't do that. On Sundays, you can't go outside and play. It's like, Sunday up, doesn't matter. You, you got to be inside and like, while my parents are sleeping. And, well, I want to go outside and play. Well, God doesn't want you to, and he's going to kill you if you do. I'm like, oh, okay, better not then, right? All I was told about Christianity is what you can't do. And what we've tried to do within Christianity is try to make, well, it's not that bad. You can still do this. You can still do that. It's fine, right? But what if I said to you that if all Christianity did was made you miserable, it'd still be worth it. Because what cost can you place on eternity? Because whatever we experience now, whatever decisions we make now, and our decisions are important, right? It affects our eternity. Because the only thing I can say to you for sure that's going to happen to you is death. I can't tell you how much money you'll make. I don't know how, 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 when you'll find your soulmate if that even exists I, I can't tell you any of that kind of stuff right people say to me what choices should i make in life i don't know i don't have a magic ball i don't, I don't have like some sort of like thing i can do i i don't, I don't know what life's going to do to you i don't know where it's going to take you i don't know about your health i don't know about your finances i don't know about your relationships what i do know is unless christ returns you will die this is a feel-good sermon i know i get that right <laughs> but the bible tells us something for people, 
that can be completely terrifying. I don't want to die, but I will. But what decision I make right now will affect that moment. Will affect that moment. Right? We sang about it. Well done, that good and faithful servant. No, we didn't sing about it. That was our devotion this morning. Sorry. Right? We will all stand before God and we will give account for our lives. That's eternity. And just to be clear on something here, and I've taught on this before, but just throw it out there. When you stand before God, don't think for a second he's going to go, well, there was that one time, you know, that weekend in Las Vegas. I don't know. I don't know. Peter, come over here. Let's take a look at his file. Whoa, really? Tied at 1.4%? I don't know about that. Uh, you didn't go to church? You know, oh, Easter and Christmas, that's the only time. I'm sorry. Heaven is all full right now. But there's another place like Sunday, right? That's the way that that's the way we think about God. And you're all chuckling, like, ah. it's a nervous laughter, and I get that, right? But here's the thing. Think about this, right? When you stand before God, there's no conversation. The decision's already made. Because you're deciding it right now. I love how C.S. Lewis envisions this. He says, Hell or heaven is a choice we make every day when we wake up. It is. So what what what, what the thing is the, the value. If I said to you, I have this investment opportunity, it's going to cost you everything. And it may not give dividends right now, but there is, there is a point where it's going to be worth more than anything you, you own. And you go, I got to weigh that out, right? The kingdom of heaven, whatever it is, has value on eternity. At first, Jesus is a choice. He's a choice, right? Some of you choose Jesus, but you don't know what you're really choosing. I choose to be a Christ follower. Do you really know what you're getting into? It's going to cost you everything. But I don't want to give everything. Too bad. Because that's how Christianity properly understood lived. And the final part. Mingled in growth, separated at maturity. Here's what I need you to understand, and please understand. I speak this to you as a person who actually likes you. Right? Sometimes my wife and I, when we're, when we're having heated conversations. Let's just put it that way, right? My wife has to say to me, I'm telling you this as a person who loves you. Stop fighting me. And I'm like, oh, I want to fight. That's how I am. She's like, I love you, okay? I've seen what you look like in the morning. I still love you. So why aren't you listening to me, right? So in other words, she's saying to me, I love you. I have, I have nothing. I want nothing but the best for you. So listen to me, right? It's, it, it's taken a long time and I've finally figured out that I'm going to, right? But well, woo, yeah. It's the only time I ever get the amen. Okay. But look at this here. Oh, yeah, we're recording this, aren't we? Okay, anyways. The, the Darnell ryegrass and the wheat grow together and they look similar. How do you know they're good? The maturity point. I was in seminary and my professor said to me, if you've never led someone to Jesus, you're a failure as a Christ follower. And at that point in time, I had it. And I'm like, how can I be a pastor if I've never shared my faith and led someone to Jesus? And I say that to you, and some of you are like, does you really believe that? Is that actually true? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't, I don't know. But it's this idea of what the Bible's saying is maturity produces fruit. You got no fruit. You're immature. And then the fish... Let's scoop them all together. 
let's figure out which ones are dead. Sometimes the conversations we're having about Christianity and faith are not conversations we should be having about Christianity and faith, but really about saying, what am I doing with what I got? Do you know what terrifies me about me? Well, there's a lot of things, okay? And besides my Batman obsession, right? What terrifies me about me is that I believe that God has given me certain gifts and abilities. I, I, I have. Every one of us do. But what I don't want to see happen is me taking those gifts and abilities and using it for myself. Right? God, what you've given me is yours. My wife and I, since we've planted this church, we've lived open-handed in our, in, in our walk with God. And what I mean by open-handed is, Lord, whatever it is you need to take from my life. And that's a terror. Oh my gosh, that's so terrifying. I can't even begin to tell you. Lord, take this, take that, take this. And, and so when we planted this church, we were saying, Lord, take my financial stability. Take my understanding of what's going to happen. Take my, my game plan of my career, right? Take all that and just, just take it, Lord. What, what's what's going to happen? Looking back a year and a half, I, obviously, it's like, yay, God. But then that summer of 2014, it wasn't a yay, God. It was, what have I done? How could I have resigned? What am I doing? You know, who, it's just like, but we've learned to live open-handed. And that has been tested over this year and a half as well, too. With things that's happened in our lives, it's just like, Lord, right? I can't grow in maturity unless I live that way. And let me tell you something. Many of you don't like church. You find it boring. You find all these things. And, and to that I say, I, I get it, right? The person sitting next to you and sitting around you, did you know that God placed them there for a reason? To bug you? To irritate you? To help, to, to be an example and a model for you as well? And then that agitation, that's how you grow up. You ever seen a washing machine? Hopefully many of you have. <laughs> you open up the lid, there's this thing at the middle of it. It's that spiky thing. You know what that's for? To agitate. To make sure that the soap and the clothes, and it agitates and it cleans. That's what these people around you are for. And do you know what I find with people who leave this community? Not this community particularly, but just in general, in church in general? No one agitates them. They don't grow and they don't mature. People say to me, well, I want, to, I, I want more of God. Okay? Let the person next to you teach you how to love that. But you don't understand. They're like, they don't even wear the same shoes as I do. Come on, right? It's like, they don't even like the same music I do. How can that be, Right? Agitation is how you mature and how you grow. But here's the thing, right? God expects us to be faithful with what he entrusts to us. And that's the thing that terrifies me the most. Lord, am I faithful? I, 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 I like to think I am, but sometimes I'm faithless. Sometimes I don't believe what God wants. There's moments I think to myself, have I made a mistake? Am I, am I not serving you, Lord? Am I not working towards what you want from me? Effort? Am I not putting enough effort forward? I, I, I do think about that in myself. I have a lot of doubt. I don't know if I don't people think of me as like somebody who has it all together or has a great deal of, of uh, okay, let's be honest, arrogance, right? I know that. But believe it or not, I actually have a lot of doubt. I, I, I do. I, I, I doubt myself a lot. I doubt my, my understanding of scripture. I doubt my understanding of God. I'm always trying to say, Lord, is this really what you want? Is this what your word says? Like this, is this just a tradition? Like I do. And so because of that, because of my doubt, doubt's okay, by the way, because it forces me into God's presence. 
forces me to pray more. It forces me to study more. It forces me to ask questions of people around me, like people I trust. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Brian about things I'm thinking. I'm like, Brian, is this completely crazy? Same thing with any of my elders, like Derek and Sylvia. My wife, who is, by the way, my wife has more degrees than me. She's smarter than me, okay? And so I'm like, sweetheart, is this heretical or am I a total heretic here? Or is this just is this okay, do you think? Can you check my work, love? Can you just tell me how it goes, right? And, I, and I'm, I'm putting a couple people out, but what I'm trying to say to you is that God's placed people in my life where I say, is this, does this sound right to you? Why? Because I doubt. Why? Because I don't know exactly what God wants from me. I just want to serve him with everything that I have because I will stand before him and have to give account for my life. He's not going to care about my vacations. He's not going to care about how many Batman figures I have, although I think it'll be pretty cool, right? What he's really going to care about is saying, Raja, I gave you these abilities and these talents. Did you use them for my glory or for your glory? Last thing. Everything I said to you can come across as condemnation. Some of you are feeling it right now, and I know that. You know why I know that? Because I'm writing this and I'm feeling it, right? Let me show you the solution. It's pretty simple. Let's go back to Jesus again. John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Jesus says this about himself. I am the true vine, and my father is a gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. How do we become fruitful? You're asking me right now how to become more fruitful in my life. How do I lead someone to Christ? How do I share my faith? How do I pray more? How do I learn to give my life away more? The answer is simple. Just love Jesus. He's the true vine. And do you know how you're disconnected from the true vine? You're not bearing any fruit. You know, I love, Brian was talking about the city group. I love our city group. And I love my past city groups. I love talking to people and hearing testimonies and stories. Stories of struggle, but stories of victory. And victory is not a change of circumstance. Victory is accepting whatever God wants. It's like, Lord, I don't know. I don't know. I'm struggling with this. Okay, let's pray about that. But now let's go on here. Look at verses, uh, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I will you, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What can you do without Jesus? Some things. Have a big house, lots of money, good career, lots of relationships, lots of Facebook friends. Like that matters. Only matters to Matt Naismith and uh, Guelph, but that's how our story, right? Um, what can you do without, like, whoo, don't worry about it. It's inside joke. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You know what my job is as a pastor? Is to get as close to Jesus as I possibly can. Everything else is just details. That's it. I got I to gotta pray. Like, like, I think the reason God made me a, um, a, a milkman, a milk driver, is because my staff know this. On Wednesdays and Fridays, I'll send a, uh, a BBM. My elders know too. Driving a milk truck today, all day long, by myself, extrovert. Ah! So I'll talk to God. I, that's all I got, right? Right? So I pray all day long. I pray for you. I pray for volunteers. I, I, I go through a list in my mind. I do this, right? This is why I think the Catholics are kind of cool uh, with the rosary beads. It's a good idea, actually. It's really, it really helps, right? So I go through it. This is what I say. 
Lord, I pray for my staff. I pray for Melissa. I pray for Sarah. I pray for Lauren. I pray for Marshall. And I go through aspects of her life, and I pray for every aspect. I pray for Melissa for her pregnancy. I pray for Sarah for her impending wedding. I pray, I pray everything. Then I go through my elders. Say, Lord, I pray for Derek, I pray for Sylvia, and I, I, and I pray for Norm. And I pray for every aspect of their life. Why? The enemy wants to take things and, and, and go through and, and, and distract people. But then I go on. Then I go through my, my, my leaders. I, I, pray, I pray for Kristen, uh, who, who, does my, uh, who, does, who does our first press team. I pray for Caitlin, who does the video. I pray for Justin as he organizes sound. I pray for Becky as she's downstairs with the little kids. I pray, um, I pray for Brian as he does the I, I, I just, I, what, what am I trying to do here? I'm just trying to get closer to God. I'm trying to pray. I'm just trying to figure out, Lord, my job is to get closer to you, Lord Jesus. That's it. I got to be in the vine. I don't know if I'm a good preacher. I don't know if I'm a good pastor. I don't know any of these things, but here's what I do know. I want to be in, I want to be in Jesus. Because now look, okay? If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire and burned. A pattern of how Jesus teaches, the gift I have for you is free. Take it, run with it. By the way, I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit, the creative force of the universe. That enough? Good. Now run, go. What if it's wrong? It doesn't matter. Go, go love Jesus. But at the end, there's always this little tag at the end. If you don't, if you love comfort and pleasure and your own wealth and your own status and you love all these things more than you love Jesus, this is what's, this is what's in store. I say this to you this morning because I think sometimes we have to readjust our understanding of what God wants for us. And the body of Christ is the perfect place where this is, 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 is fermented, is grown, is, is agitated, is all of that. You detach from this, and not just this, anywhere. University students, many of you are leaving us. Hopefully we'll see you next Sunday. But if not, I want to tell you something really quickly. As you leave us, you go home to whatever home is for you. And for some of you, that's joyful. Yes, I've done dorm life, right? I'm done, I'm done living with these pigs or animals, right? I get that, right? But you go home to a church that's not like UCC or any other church. And that can be a disconnect of the spirit. Young university students who are leaving us, please hear me very clearly. Find a, a, a community of faith where, where you can, we can plug in for the summer. And if you do not return to us, if you're not coming back in the fall, you're going elsewhere, find it, okay? Dig deep. No church is perfect, okay? And you'll definitely find somebody who preaches way less time than I do, right? But find it, okay? Find it. Because if you don't find it, you will not grow in your faith, and you'll be like the weeds, you'll be like the dead fish. God hasn't brought you this far just for right now. He's brought you for the rest of your life. Here's what I want you to know. UCC isn't perfect, it's not. But we don't try for perfection. Things don't go right. Things don't go whatever. If I have the right date on the update, you can look there whenever you want, right? I, I, I'm okay with that. We are trying to, as a community, get cl- closer to Jesus. That's it. And everything else, I'll figure it out. Let me give you a little bit of plug here before I close in prayer. Next Sunday is a special Sunday here at UCC. And university students, if you can stick around for next Sunday... Next Sunday, we are going to have a solemn assembly. You're like, what is that? It's something that appears in the Old Testament. It's going to be like a short prayer time, a short sermon. Like, that's possible, but it will be, I trust me, it will be. And time for prayer. 
We're going to anoint with oil those who need healing. We are going to pray. We are going to, uh, we're going to have that time of going before God's presence. And we're going to have a time of prayer and of worship. Um, Dave is leading the team and we're already talking about what that looks like. But it's going to be time in God's presence. And whatever God does, that's what we're going to do next Sunday. That's how we wrap up the series. Is we can't talk about the body of Christ without ministering the body of Christ. Some of you need prayer. You're hiding things. You're holding things in. You know what a solemn assembly is in the Old Testament? It's time for Repentance. And some of you need to repent. You need to repent of your life. Repentance comes from a Greek word, metaneo, change in direction. You've got to stop doing what you're doing. And you've got to go to where, you, where God wants you to be. And that's not a geographic place. It's a place of the spirit. Remember, in the world, not a ge- geographic place. It's a mindset. Next Sunday on the 24th is that solemn assembly. It's going to be a great time. You definitely don't want to miss it. Okay, let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Do this every week. You know that. Think, meditate. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you right now? Please hear me very clearly. Nobody is meant to leave this with guilt and shame. Those are the tools of the enemy. Conviction is not guilt and shame. It's change in direction. And change in direction can be a 180 or it can be a 90. It can be something different. God has given you salvation. Jesus upon the cross. God has given you the spirit, the day of Pentecost. After that, the rest is just details. Are you growing in your faith? Are you placing the proper value on the kingdom of heaven? Growth in value. Matthew, when he's writing this chapter, he puts these together for a reason. He wants the people to understand this is what's important. But he bookends it and says, listen, This is important, but you will be called to give account for it as well. Jesus is the true vine. Remain in him. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Is there something in your life that you're hoping that gets to know Jesus? Are you trying to make sure you have the right arguments, the right waves, the right smile, and think that's how they get to know Jesus? No, no, you need to get into Jesus. You need to pray for them. You need to trust in God. Is it a career? Is it school? Is it a relationship? Whatever it is. Stop trying to change your circumstances and start pressing into God. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I want to stop doing nothing. I want to start doing something. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for Matthew's gospel. I thank you for this chapter. I thank you, Lord, that you left us what we need to see there. God, I pray that nobody would leave here with condemnation. That's the enemy. The accuser tells us we're not doing enough. But our Savior says, I've done everything. I pray, God, that each person here, man and woman, young adult, adult, child, teenager, whatever it would be, would know that they are meant to grow in their faith. Lord, like the mustard seed and the yeast, that you are meant to have the kingdom of heaven infect and affect every aspect of our lives. And God, I pray that we would understand the value. It is eternity. What dollar figure could we place on eternity? What status could we place on eternity? Nothing. I pray, God, that we would understand that the kingdom of heaven is worth everything. It's worth discomfort. It's worth not having all the pleasures of this life. It's worth not having all the things everyone else has. But if we have you, Lord Jesus, we have everything.
And finally, Lord God, I pray we would understand that we will be called into account for our lives. How we talk about one another, how we love one another, how we treat the church, this faith community. If we look at it with scoffing and criticism, we will be called to account for that. I pray, God, that we would change our attitudes. Holy Spirit, you would change our hearts. And whether it's a heart of stone or a heart with many scars, that you would give us a heart of flesh once again, Lord Jesus. God, I thank you that you love us and you forgive us, that when we fall, you pick us back up and we go forward, Lord. I thank you that your mercy and your faithfulness, even in our unfaithfulness, is true. Spirit of the Most High God, I pray you'd speak to us. You'd go throughout the week with us in Jesus' name. Amen.